There is a short story about Abraham tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament that my mind goes back to time and and time again. It's a wonderful story. It had to do with uh, an event in Abraham's life when he and his herdsmen fell into conflict with the herdsmen of his nephew Lot. And something had to be done. There wasn't enough land to support support both flocks. So uh, Abraham got together with Lot and he said, you choose, you choose the best and I'll take whatever is left. Now that was a, an amazing uh, thing for Abraham to do, an, an amazing concession. Because he owned the entire land of Canaan by divine right. God had given to him that piece of real estate. He was also the patriarch of his clan. So he had the right to claim the best and uh, to banish Lot if he chose to do so. But he, he let Lot choose. And as you know, Lot chose the best, the well-watered uh, plains around the city of Sodom. And Abram was left with uh, the land that, that remained. Now, uh, if you didn't know better, if you didn't know Abraham better, you might think that he simply wimped out at this point. But uh, that's not what this is about. Abraham was not a controversialist. He didn't pick fights, but he never backed away from a fight when it was necessary to do so, when the issue was one of right and wrong. Uh, just a few pages after this event, uh, the Old Testament tells us that that Abraham armed his uh, retainers, his, his uh, servants, household servants, and he went after Lot, who uh, had become the victim of a raid on Sodom. And the four kings which he encountered were four of the greatest kings of the Middle East, one of which was probably the old uh, Babylonian lawgiver, Hammurabi. So Abraham was not afraid to engage in controversy when it was necessary to do so. But uh, the issue here was far greater than a piece of grass. There is a footnote that the author of of Genesis inserts into the story in verse 7. This is in Genesis 13. In verse 7 he says, The Canaanites and the Perizzites were then in the land. Uh, it seems almost like an afterthought, but it's not. It's a very significant part of that passage. What he's saying is that Abraham was sensitive to the fact that there were pagans around him. He was surrounded by unbelievers, and Abraham had a mandate to bring salvation even to the Canaanites. And so there was a greater issue than grace, than grass. It was necessary for Abraham to exhibit the goodness of God. This is not about grass, it's about grace. Now, uh, I was meeting with a, a group of men some years ago, and we were studying that particular passage. And one of the men, uh, I'll never forget this, he leaned back in his chair, and he muttered to himself, what a beautiful guy, he said. And I thought, beautiful is exactly the right, exactly the right word. The Old Testament word for good, uh, it's the word tov in Hebrew, means beauty, has that double entendre. Uh, Sarah, for example, is called uh, tov, good, beautiful. Uh, goodness is more than a matter of rectitude, just being proper and correct and right. It's a, it's a matter, uh, or pardon me, goodness is, is more than a matter of rectitude. It's, it's a matter of, of displaying the beauty and the grace of God. 
Peter picks up the same idea in his little epistle when he says, live such good lives before the, uh, the surrounding pagans that they will see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. And on both occasions where that word good is used, he uses the Greek word that literally means beauty. A good life is a, is a beautiful life. Now, uh, as I've mentioned before, Mammy Yoakum says goodness is better than badness because it's nicer. But uh, we're not talking about niceness here. We're being good old boys. Uh, there, there is a more than quality about, about authentic Christianity that Jesus spells out in exactly those terms. He says, what do you do more than others? It's an over and above quality to righteousness that you only see in people that have the real thing, that have authentic Christianity. Now, the best example uh, of that characteristic is our Lord himself, who is said to have possessed grace and truth. The people that knew him best, the people that were closest to us, said of him, we saw his glory, his beauty, and he was full of grace and truth. Now, there is a truth that is the antithesis of falsehood, but it can also be very ugly. It's when truth is paired with with grace that it becomes truly beautiful. And, and you see that over and over again in our Lord's life. Now, you think, for example, of that, of that occasion when he, he and his disciples were walking uh, through the city of Jerusalem, and they were all arguing about who's the greatest of us all. And, and it's significant to me that our Lord said very little to them at that point. He, he, could have, he could have blasted them with truth. He wouldn't have been blamed. We wouldn't have blamed him if he had done so. But he didn't do that. As you know, when he came to the upper room, he, he took off his outer robes and he got down his hands and knees and he washed their feet. What a wonderful picture of what it means to be the greatest of all, to be a servant. And, and I'm sure as he worked his way around, around that room, one or another of the apostles must have thought, what a beautiful man. And then there was that occasion when he encountered that, that, uh, that individual that Luke describes as being full of leprosy. It's a medical term for an advanced case of the disease. He was all lesions and running sores and grotesque stumps. And Luke tells us that Jesus hugged him. <laughs> Most of the translations say touched him, but the word is far stronger. He threw his arms around this man and, and gave him a big hug. Now, there's no need to do that to heal him. Jesus could have healed him from afar with a word. But there's every need in the world because nobody else would touch him. But Jesus hugged him. And I'm sure that man went away thinking, what a, what a beautiful man. And there was that occasion when our Lord was teaching in the temple and uh, he was interrupted by a crowd dragging in this uh, poor, disheveled, rumpled up, embarrassed, defiant woman. And she was dropped at his feet and they say, we caught her in the act of adultery. Moses said, Stoner, what do you say? Jesus said, daughter, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And she must have walked away from that encounter thinking, what a, what, a, what a beautiful man, what a gracious person. There's truth there, but there's also grace that made him beautiful. And then you see our Lord, uh, the way he reacted to little children, you know, the dirty little street urchins that 
that uh, hardly ever took baths. And, and they clustered around Jesus, and he picked them up, put them on his lap, and the disciples wanted to shoo them away. And he, I always think of George MacDonald's words, a good man is one around whose gate and garden children are un- unafraid to play. They were attracted to Jesus, and he was attracted to them, and he hugged them, and he didn't make any difference that they were dirty. And I'm sure their mothers must have thought, what, what a beautiful man. Now, all you have to do is look at the life of Jesus and see the kind of life he lived to see that beauty in, in action. And so I, I have to ask myself from time to time, am I growing toward beauty or am I getting uglier every day? You know, we're, there's nothing static about life. It's, 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 it's very dynamic. We're either growing toward likeness to God and His beauty, or we're growing away from it. We're either either becoming uh, difficult to be around, we're either rubbing people the wrong way, or we're growing sweeter every day. So the question for me and the question for you is, which way are we growing? Now that's the issue that we want to deal with uh, this morning. I want you to look at the passage that, assi- that, that, that is assigned. It's Luke 6. Beginning with verse 12, Chris gave me an enormous text to preach on, and I'm not, there's simply no way I could cover all this material in one morning, but we will give it a once-over lightly. Luke 6, verse 12. Now, the text begins with the call of the apostles. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve, whom he also designated apostles. It's a rich history behind that word. The uh, the, uh, rabbis of that day uh, called to themselves a group of men that they called shalia. It's an Aramaic counterpart of this word apostles. They taught them, and they sent them out with their authority. And this is the counterpart of that uh, that traditional uh, uh, task which the rabbis undertook. He chose twelve whom he designated apostles. Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, if you didn't know, but you were asked what sort of men Jesus would choose to associate with, you'd probably think in terms of uh, some sort of moral hero. But you'd be wrong. These were not nice guys. Uh, Four of them were uh, commercial fishermen. uh, Tough, rugged lot. One of them was a member of an underground militia. Uh, determined to drive the government off the land, to get the government off their backs. One of them is, has been identified as a member of the Sicarii, uh, so-called because they carried little daggers that were called Sicarii, it's a Latin word for a dagger. Uh, they were they're professional assassins on the level of mafia hitmen. These are not nice guys. But these were the people that Jesus called to be in, associate, uh, to be in association with him. They had chosen to follow him. They loved him. They wanted to change. They wanted to be different. They wanted to be everything that God wanted them to be. They had a heart for God. 
And so our Lord called him to himself, and he began to teach them, and he began to train them, and he began to prepare them for being salt and light. That's one of the most startling statements, I think, in, in, in the New Testament. You, he said to this group of men, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. That is the element that arrests the spread of corruption in the world. You and you alone are the light of the world. The people that dispel darkness and bring bring uh, enlightenment to your world. You know, this in a world that looked to men like Plato and Aristotle and Zoroaster and others. Uh, he says, no, you and you alone are the salt and light of the world. And they become his fellow travelers. They, they begin to walk with him. This, the text goes on to say they he went with them down to a level place. He began to spend time with them. Uh, I, I got into the Louvre site the other day on the internet, and I was just poking around looking at some of the pictures, and I came across uh, Rembrandt's uh, picture of the Pilgrims of Emmaus. Most of you, or some of you, have seen it, be familiar with it. Uh, it really, a, an unremarkable picture when you first look at it. It's all brown drab tones, and nothing that catches the eye particularly, except uh, the white. Uh, there's a white cloth on the table. Uh, it, it portrays Jesus and the two pilgrims who traveled with him from Jerusalem down to Emmaus. And there are the implements of their pilgrimage around the room. There's a kind of a coat rack in the corner and there's a cloak hanging on. You can see their staffs. And uh, they're, they're, bare, they're barefoot. And Rembrandt painted their feet in fine detail uh, to show that they've been walking. It's a stress on the fact that they've been walking together with, with Jesus. And the table is set for a meal, and there's a servant hovering in the background. And one of these men is, is sitting with his arms folded, leaning back, listening to Jesus. The other's leaning forward. They're obviously attending well to what he has to say. And you look at the picture, and it doesn't seem to say anything at all until suddenly it dawns on you what Rembrandt is trying to say. The place in the table opposite the observer, that's you and me, is empty. And so Rembrandt is inviting us to join with Jesus and to be a fellow traveler, to be a pilgrim uh, with him. And that's what we want to do. We want to go down with the disciples to this uh, place where he's going to teach the people and learn from him. And Luke goes on to say in verse 17, A large crowd of his disciples were there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming forth from him and healing them all. And there's a lot we could say about this, uh, this section of the text, but I just want to make one observation. There are three types of people here that can be represented by concentric circles. There are the apostles who really had a heart for our Lord. There were the disciples who are involved but less, intense, less intensely, and then there are those that are just going along for the ride. And thus it will always be. And again, the question is, to which group do we belong? I believe that the primary focus of this teaching, the emphasis of it, is, it is for the apostles and the disciples. The others really did not have ears to hear, as Jesus tells us. It's to those who hear that he addresses uh, these words. And he begins to teach. 
uh, verse 20. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because the Son of Man rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that's how their fathers treated the prophets. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets. There's a great deal of scholarly debate over this text, whether it is simply a parallel passage to Matthew's uh, account of the Sermon on the Mount or whether it's a different event. For myself, I think it's it's a different event. Uh, These words were uttered in a level place. Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount was in another location. I think Jesus repeated himself a lot. It's a characteristic of good teachers. And the Beatitudes were one tenet of his teaching that he repeated over and over again because what you have in the Beatitudes is what authentic Christianity is. Uh, That's what we ought to be or be becoming. So I think he he repeated that little thumbnail sketch of real Christianity over and over and over again. But he does something that is significantly different in this passage. He pairs the Beatitudes with a series of woes. Happiness is, he says, being poor and being hungry and, 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 and being tearful and being persecuted. But woe to those who are rich and full and famous. And interesting. Now, by woes, he doesn't mean that God pronounces a woe upon these people. It's, it's, it's the counterpart of the idea of happiness. Happiness is being poor and, 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 and having a, your reputation assaulted. And it's being mistreated. And it's not having enough. And uh, unhappiness is being rich and, and having everybody speak well of you. And having everything that, that you need in this life. And you say, what in the world is going on here? That's upside down to the way the world views happiness and, and unhappiness. Well, what Jesus is doing here is contrasting two types of people. There, there are those that want it all now. Four times in this passage, verse 21, I think verse 25, four times he says, now, you have it now. He's contrasting those that, that have what they want here and now with those that, that are waiting for God to provide it in his own time and in his own way, whether it's here or, or whether it's in, it's in heaven, you see. Uh, one person is absorbed with the permanent, the other with the passing. One person stores up treasure in heaven. The other accumulates it here on earth. One believes that happiness is being rich and full and famous. Another is willing to suffer poverty, hunger, indignity, and shame because of the glory that is to be revealed. You say, well, you know, that's that's pie in the sky by and by. Well, that's true, it is. But as C.S. Lewis said, there is pie in the sky by and by. 
And we need to remember that. This isn't all there is. What you see is not what you get. There is another world that's coming up. That's why Paul can say, the suffering of this world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So you have a difficult marriage. So what? So life is hard for you. So you don't have all the money you need. So your body is not as healthy as you would like. So what? This isn't all there is. There's another life ahead in which we'll receive everything that's coming to us. So we don't have to have it now. That's what he's saying. We don't have to be rich. We don't have to have plenty. We don't have to be well thought of because this isn't all there is. I came across a statement that Ray Steadman put in a book some years ago. He said, the world tells us if you don't take it now, you're never going to get another chance. Don't succumb to that philosophy that you have to have it all now or you'll never have another chance. You can pass by a lot of things now and be content because you know that what God is sending you now is just what you need to get you ready for what he is waiting for you when this life is over. I have seen that misunderstanding drive people into forsaking their marriages after 30 or 40 years and running off with another, usually younger person, hoping they can still fulfill their dreams because they feel life is slipping away. Christians are not to think that way. This life is a school, a training period, where we are being prepared for something that is incredibly great but is yet to come. I don't understand all that is involved in that, but I believe it, and sometimes I can hardly wait until it happens. Well, it's happened to Ray. He has it all now. He's, he's with the Lord, you see. He would say with Paul, the suffering that I endured back then is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's, that's mine uh, today. You see, that's the perspective that Abraham maintained. The reason I told you that story in the beginning is because Abraham saw the invisible. Uh, at the end of the story, God took Abraham up on a mountain. He said, I'm, I'm pleased with you that you were willing to give away the land. I'm going to show you what I want to give you. Takes him up on top of a mountain. He says, look to the north, the south, the west, the east. It's all yours. The whole universe is yours. So it's having that perspective, you see, that enables us to, to give up something that we might want to acquire in the here and now. And that's what makes us very odd and very strange and very different to the world. They cannot figure us out. A.W. Tozer says a real Christian is an odd number. He feels supreme love for one he has never seen, someone he cannot see. He expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another. He empties himself in order to be full. He admits he is wrong so he can be declared right. He's strongest when he's weakest, richest when he's poorest, happiest when he feels the worst. He dies so he can live forsakes in order to have, gives away so he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passes knowledge. That's why you're always going to seem strange, you see, if you have that other world view. I have a dear friend, I've told this story before, who was denied a doctorate in a, in a prestigious West Coast uh, university. And when he stood before his uh, committee chairman, and the chairman told him what the committee had decided, the first thing that went through his head was the thought of thousands of dollars and five years of his life flying away. And then he thought of the words of that little chorus, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. 
I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. And he laughed. He laughed out loud. And the guy thought he'd snapped. And he ran out of the room to get the secretary. He said, that's all right. That's okay. It's all right. Doesn't matter. Now, you see, that's the perspective that enables us to hear what Jesus has to say next. That's the connection between these Beatitudes and woes in the following context. Let's read it. I tell you who hear me. It's just for those who hear the inaudible. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other one also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. You see the relationship between one and the other? What's a tunic to someone who's going to be clothed in righteousness throughout eternity? What's something that you loan and you don't get back when you're going to get the whole world back when you come into your own? Do to others what you'd have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. See, this is that more than quality that Jesus is talking about. Sinners love people who love them. Sinners loan to people who give give their uh, borrowed items back. Sinners do that. What do you do more than others? Well, you love the unlovely. Uh, you're gracious to those that are ingracious to you. You're kind to those that are unkind to you. Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. No strings attached. Just give your stuff away. It's just stuff. Which we're inclined to accumulate here on this earth and think that is really valuable and it's what gives meaning and happiness to us. But we all know that the more we have of our stuff, the more we want. That's a bottomless pit. You can never find happiness in accumulation. Give it away. Loan it. That's the gift that you have to those that mistreat you. Then your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High because He's kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is is merciful. Now that is so unlike us in our natural state. You know, our normal response is a Rambo-like reaction. When the body count reaches 100, we've evened the score. There's a story in in, in one of Steve Farrar's books about a dog that wanders into an old western bar. And he orders a drink, and the, the barkeep uh, tells him to get lost, and he barks at the barkeep, and so the, the bartender whips out his forty-four and shoots him in the foot. So the dog limps out, but a week later he's back with a six-gun slung low on his hips, and he says, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw, he says. <clears throat> That's the kind of retaliation we like, see? But Jesus says, no, that's not the way to right wrongs. Love, generosity, blessing, and intercessory prayer are the gifts we have to give others. Now, if we had time, I'd like to develop this because I just want to issue one caveat. Here our Lord is talking about indignity and and insults and, and humiliations and those sorts of things. He's not talking about 
protection from physical harm. I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I have great sympathy for those Christians that are. I, I just don't happen to be one. I believe in the right of national defense. I believe in the right of personal defense. And I certainly think it, it's a terrible wrong to abuse another person physically. Uh, that, that's, that's dreadful sin. And God will judge abusers. And if you're being abused, then you need to take whatever steps you, you must take to protect yourself. I think it was Augustine who first noted that in, the, in Matthew's uh, account of this same set of teachings, that Jesus said, if someone uh, strikes you on the left, on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. And he pointed out that since most uh, assailants in the world are right-handed, uh, presumably if someone attacked you on the street, they would, uh, and they threw a punch at you, they'd hit you on the left cheek. So I, be that what it may what it may be. Augustine says that he's not talking about an attack on your person. He's talking about a backhanded slap, an insult, a humiliation. That we're to take. And the gift we give back is love and intercessory prayer and care and and, and concern and compassion. And that's that more than quality. Uh, it's, it's a life that's styled by God's grace, and it has an awesome effect upon others. To the point of all of this is not just that we make our way through life being kind to people. It's because, as Jesus goes on to say, we're to be like our Father. We're to be chips off the block. We're to, we're to behave as He behaves toward others because it's the goodness of God that draws people to repentance. It's the goodness of God seen in us. It's the kindness that we display to others. It has, a, it has an awesome effect upon others when we begin to respond uh, that way. You go back to the story of Abraham. He did what he did because the Canaanites and the Perizzites were still, still in the land. Uh, if you can remember back to your high school or college days, and you read Melville's story, Billy Budd, you remember there's this young man who was... Uh, uh, he was uh, conscripted off of his original boat, and he was placed in His Majesty's service. And the officer of the boat in which he served objected strenuously because he said, uh, "My castle was a rat pit of quarrels, but Billy came, and it was like an Irish priest striking peace, an Irish priest striking peace in an Irish shanty." Not that he preached to them or said or did anything, but a virtue went out of him, sugaring the sour ones. And, uh, you know, the rest of the story, is he was eventually hung because of his goodness. So you can't expect for people to always respond to you the right way. But, but our kindness, our goodness, the beauty of our lives has an awesome effect upon the people around us. George MacDonald said, the only way to make uh, uh, people good is to be good, he says. The time for speaking comes, comes rarely. The, kind, the time for being never departs. Now, evangelism, for me, is not merely the spoken word. I think that's essential because people need to know the basis of our love for other people. But evangelism is not just, as a friend of mine says, a mouth that moves on cue. It is a life that displays the beauty and the goodness of God. 
which will go so far as to love those that use and abuse them and are careless uh, of their rights. That goodness is almost irresistible. That's what Peter means in the passage that I I quoted early on. Live such good lives, such beautiful lives, that they may see your beautiful works and glorify God on the day when he visits us, when God comes back. There will be a host of people there that have been drawn to him because of the attractiveness of your life. And I use attractiveness advisedly in its original sense of that which attracts. Because that kind of life draws people to our Lord. Someone gave me a, a sermon from a, a man named Will Campbell. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a Yale-trained hillbilly. Uh, he uh, ministers to uh, people in the back country of Tennessee. And he put it this way. Somebody's always winding up my preaching sessions by charging. What you're saying is just do nothing. And when I hear that, that's when I know I'm coming through. That's when I say, brother, nail that one down. Now you got the message. Do nothing. Instead, be something. Before you start trying to figure out what you should do about all the world's woes, just be what you are, a follower of Christ. When that happens, then you won't have to ask what to do. You'll know. Being comes first. And it's that beauty of character that dispels all of the... uh, the, the terrible notions that people have about about Christians. All you have to do is look to the media to see what they think of Christians. Christians are ugly as far as they're concerned. They're uptight. They may be up, they may be upright, but they're uptight. See? And they don't care about people. And we've got to dispel that illusion. How do we do it? Just by loving people that don't deserve our love. Because that's what the Father did. See? That's the way he behaves. And, and, and what Jesus is saying in this passage is this incredible thing. Be as good as God is. <laughs> Be as mature as your father is. Dee sang the first words of, of a song. No one is good but God. You remember the incident? I'd forgotten it until Dee sang it. Remember the incident? Somebody came to Jesus and said, good teacher. And Jesus stopped it. He said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's no one good but God. Now, he wasn't denying that he was good. What he was doing was testing this man's concept of goodness because we tend to have a relative view of goodness. Talk about good old boys, and some of the good old boys I know are mean as snakes when push comes to shove. He's not talking about being nice guys or good old boys. He's talking about being as good as God is. Can you do that? Can you pull that one off? No, you can't. You can't. Neither can I. It has to be done from the inside out. So only as God works in our lives to make us what he's intended us to be as we become his fellow travelers, pilgrims with him, and we join him. And his goodness begins to rub off on us. He begins to soften our wills and soften our faces and make us the kind of beautiful people that that, that we've seen exhibited here in, in our Lord's life and in, and in Abraham's life. Uh, one story, and then I'm done. I... I uh, was reading to our kids Christmas Eve, our grandkids Christmas Eve, Tolstoy's a wonderful little story about Martin Avdich, the old cobbler. Uh, he lost his, his wife, he lost his uh, child, he lost his faith till an old monk came down from the monastery and encouraged him to read again the New Testament. He said, it'll give light to your soul. And he began to, uh, he began to read it. 
until he came to this passage that we just looked at, Luke 6, about being as good as God is. Tolstoy says he read that passage and he looked up and he said, God help me. And I think the same thing when I read this passage. I read it and I say, God help me. God help me. I cannot do that. That's the main thing he's saying. is growing toward, toward the goodness of God, being as good as God is. And I say, God help me. God help me. It's only his work within us that can cause us to grow toward that measure of goodness. Well, let's pray. God, help us. Help us to be what you've called us to be, to, have, uh, to be possessed of that subtle uh, righteousness, that almost inexplicable goodness that comes only from you, that touches people's lives so profoundly. We want that to be true of us. We want to have that, uh, that measure of your likeness, and we ask you to begin to give it to us. Thank you for the work that you are doing. And we thank you in Jesus' name.